Welcome back to the Better Boundaries podcast brought to you by Utahns for a Responsive Government. I'm Katie Wright, Executive Director of Better Boundaries and your host. Today, we're providing an update on Utah's gerrymandering lawsuit. There have been a flurry of filings this November, more delay tactics from the defendants, and a ruling from the bench. I've asked David Ryman from Parr Brown and an attorney for the plaintiffs to walk us through the case thus far. David, welcome back to our podcast. Thanks. Pleasure to be with you. All right. We're going to get right to it. Before we talk about the requests for interlocutory appeals and the defendant's additional request to stay, I want to get your thoughts on Judge Gibson's full opinion of the earlier motion to dismiss. Maybe you can start by reminding us how Judge Gibson ruled. Uh, sure. Um, she largely denied um, the motion to dismiss that had been brought by the legislature and the legislative defendants. Um, she, uh, I can get into the details, but just as a, at a very high level, she kept alive and allowed to proceed to trial all of the constitutional claims that we brought saying that the um, redistricting violated certain provisions of the Utah Constitution, including the Free Elections Clause, Freedom of Speech and Association provision, the right to vote, um, and equal protection. And those were the claims that the legislature were, was claiming could not even be heard by the court, and she rejected that argument. Um, the I say largely uh, denied it because she did dismiss one claim, and that was the claim uh, that the legislature had acted unconstitutionally in repealing Proposition 4. We had argued that they didn't have the power to do that, and she concluded that the legislature has the power to alter legislation, even if it's enacted by the people. And many aspects of the full opinion stood out to me. Um, like the complaint, I was cheering while I read it. Um, but one line in particular I found very interesting. Judge Gibson wrote, even a cursory analysis reveals the redistricting power is not exercised solely by the legislature. Can you talk to us about why that is significant? Sure. Um, one of the main arguments that the legislative defendants made that I just alluded to um, is that the claims that we brought under the Utah Constitution are not justiciable. That means, um, in, in legal speak, that means courts can't even hear the claims. They can't, they have no role in deciding them, and they have no role in reviewing this act of the legislature. And what the legislature was arguing was really quite remarkable that the le because the legislature is tasked with the um, duty to redistrict every 10 years, and the Constitution says that's their job, that therefore um, the courts have cannot even review uh, the decisions that the legislature makes to determine whether that legislation violates cons the Constitution. Um, there are a lot of different uh, examples of other things that the legislature is tasked with doing, which the uh, um, which the court pointed out that are routinely reviewed by courts, such as coming up with uh, taxes. And um, when she wrote that line, she said. You know, th this idea that it is solely uh, exercised by the legislature is just not uh, true historically because um, these maps are always submitted for a gubernatorial veto, which means the governor plays a role. And then she listed several examples of past citizen initiatives and, and referenda um, similar to Prop 4 that have spoken on the um, redistricting uh, question. And um, and because of that, she said, well, the people themselves are exercising this power. The governor is exercising this power. And so it clearly cannot be just the province of the legislature. 
And then she went on to make the fundamental point, which is that the role of courts um, is to check legislation. And that goes all the way back to Marbury versus Madison near the founding of our country. And um, the, the task of the courts is to decide whether legislation that's passed by the legislature comports with the governing document of the, the um, of whatever state you're in or um, the, the country if you're under the federal constitution. That's what courts do. And there's nothing special about drawing maps that exempts that from judicial review. And so that was really the, the sort of core fundamental holding of at least the first part um, of her decision. And, and I have to say just, you know, sort of with, with respect to the decision itself, it is it is a remarkably thorough um, and deeply researched and written um, piece of legal scholarship. She really spent um, spent a lot of time examining these issues from every angle um, and, and is, is extremely well reasoned and, and written. We were disappointed that she dismissed one of the claims, but we were on the whole very, very happy that um, she rejected this idea that the citizens don't even have a remedy if the legislature can do whatever they want. And I found it interesting because when I was spending time with the Independent Redistricting Commission and at public hearings for the Legislative Redistricting Committee, commonly people who even believe in anti-gerrymandering movement and efforts would say, but the problem is that it's in the sole discretion of the legislature. And um, there, we as an organization has have always not agreed with that stance, but it was really wonderful to see it so plainly written. Um, are there other pieces of the full opinion that you want to comment on or bring to our attention? Uh, sure. Just briefly, there's, you know, there were sort of three arguments that the legislature was making. We've talked about the first one. The second one was that they um, were claiming that the individual legislators um, and the legislative uh, committee that did the, um, the maps that were adopted were immune from suit. Um, under what's called the speech and debate clause of Utah's constitution. And she rejected that. She said, you know, you can't be sued for something that you say on the floor, but that doesn't mean that you can't be sued for constitutional violations. Um, <clears throat> and then the third uh, largest part of the of the opinion um, deals with the actual merits of the claim. So whether we have stated a claim for violation of, um, of the free elections clause or the freedom of speech and association clause or the right to vote, clause or the equal operation of laws clause, those four different constitutional claims that we had brought, um, they were arguing that even if um, even if the court could review those claims, that what the legislature did didn't violate any of those provisions. And she rejected each of those arguments and said that we have what we have outlined in our complaint um, as to what the legislature did um, would clearly constitute a violation of those provisions. And this is an early stage of the case, so we still need to present evidence to support the allegations that we've made in the complaint. But um, but it was a thorough rejection of, of all three types of ways they tried to get out of those four constitutional claims. On November 17th, later in the month, we had both the defendants and the plaintiffs file interlocutory appeals. Let's start with just explaining what is an interlocutory appeal. So for the most part, um, appeals courts, so the Utah Court of Appeals and the Utah Supreme Court, they don't review cases until they're done at the trial court level. They they prefer to have the case play itself out 
um, at trial, develop a full record, and then they will review it. On rare occasions, um, under sort of extraordinary circumstances, parties can ask the appellate courts to step in midstream, and that's called interlocutory review. It's reviewing a case before it's completed at the district court level. And um, that is what the, um, after the, the court did what it did and refused to dismiss the constitutional claims against the legislature, they filed what's called a petition for interlocutory appeal with the Utah Supreme Court, asking the, the Supreme Court to intervene now um, before a trial happens and um, and, and essentially ruled differently than, than Judge Gibson did. Um, we also, when they did that, filed um, a petition for interlocutory appeal um, that basically said, we don't think the court should step in at all on this, but if it does, it should also review the dismissal of the Proposition 4 claim that I discussed earlier. And so uh, ours was not a, um, a request that they step in. It was a, basically just a request that say, says, if you take part of this, you should take all of it and review it all at once. Whether the Supreme Court does so or not, reviews it, is discretionary. They, they don't have to hear the case, unlike when a case is done and you have what's called an appeal of right. This is a discretionary appeal. They don't grant very many of them, but they do do it sometimes. Um, and so it will be interesting to see what they do. And when will we know if this appeal moves forward or not? What's the next step in this part of the case? So the responses to those petitions are due um, next Tuesday on the 6th. And they usually, I don't know exactly how, how long they take. There's not a deadline, but they usually will decide within uh, 30 days, 45 days. Um, and if they grant, they, they won't give a reason decision. They'll either say it's granted or denied. It's sort of like certiorari at the U.S. Supreme Court. And um, if it's denied, then the case will continue moving forward in the trial court. And if it's granted, then, you know, it will become an appeal um, and we'll, we'll have to decide at that point whether the case is going to move forward in the district court or not. So we'll look to January to report back to people on where that has gone. Let's move to the defendant's motion to stay. In addition to fi filing the interlocutory appeal, the defendants had filed another motion to stay the case. Um, this isn't the first one, as I said, and can you remind us what they what the motion to stay previous one was and what the current one was? Sure. The, the prior one, um, they filed a motion to stay based on uh, the fact that the United States Supreme Court has granted certiorari in a case called Moore versus Harper that's out of North Carolina. And in that case, uh, the Republican legislature of North Carolina is making a somewhat similar argument, but it's based on the federal constitution. It's called the independent state legislature's theory. It's kind of a, um, it's a, it's a really sort of radical uh, notion that the federal constitution um, preempts state courts from having any role in reviewing redistricting legislation. Um, and that is the that is the argument that they're making because they lost on state constitutional claims in the North Carolina Supreme Court. They asked Judge Gibson to stay our case while the Supreme Court considers that case um, and decides it maybe by next summer on the off chance that they happen to rule in a particular way that might make our, might might affect our case. And she said that's too speculative and these issues are too important. They need to be litigated before the next election cycle. And so she rejected that. Well, the most recent one, which was filed just last month after they sought interlocutory um, review 
is essentially the same type of argument that there's an off chance that the Utah, we've asked them to review the case. They haven't said they will. And there's an off chance that they might review it. And so you should stay this case while the Supreme Court decides whether it is going to review it. And our position was that is going to waste um, at least 30 days that we um, could be using to do valuable discovery and push this case forward on the, the schedule it needs to be uh, on in order to get resolved, um, including any appeals before the 2024 election cycle. And um, and she uh, she heard had a hearing on that and uh, yesterday afternoon, an expedited hearing and agreed. Um, with our position and said, we don't know what the Utah Supreme Court is going to do. And she she denied their motion with what's called without prejudice, which means essentially I may re reconsider this in the future. You can bring it again, um, but there's going to have to be something different. And essentially what she said is we don't know what the Supreme Court's going to do. Um, at this point, there's no reason to, to delay this case. Um, and uh, so if the Supreme Court does decide to review this case, then we can come back and talk about it then. And our position at that point, um, as we explained to her during the hearing, would be there's no reason not to continue with discovery in the meantime while the Supreme Court reviews these issues because um, it, it will still be necessary um, to do that work in order to get the case resolved before the next election cycle. But that issue is, is for another day. So um, after the judge um, denied the second motion to stay, there was a lot of discussion in the courtroom on timelines. I noted that the attorney for the lieutenant governor's office um, stated that the that office would like the maps finalized by, I believe, November 1st of 2023 um, to be able to implement the 2024 election. Tell our listeners and for people who are watching this case closely what the early 2023 timeline looks like for this case. So we the the discussion of dates is what's called a scheduling order. It's usually entered in a in a case um, uh, to govern the deadlines for certain things that happen that have to happen. Discovery, the discovery process, and then filing of motions and pretrial disclosures and things of that sort, and eventually a trial date. And so we actually set a trial date um, for May 22nd to 26th of 2023. Um, and the dates, the other dates just kind of move backwards from there. Um, we are now commencing discovery starting, um, I believe, tomorrow. And uh, we're, it's going to be on an accelerated um, pace to try and do a lot of work in a short amount of time. Um, but we will be sort of in discovery, I would think, through, um, through kind of the... Um, uh, the middle of March um, of next year, and then there will be some motion practice after that, potentially, um, and uh, exchange of disclosures and essentially getting ready for trial. And as part of that discovery process, there will be the exchange of what are called expert reports, um, where, uh, the, the and as you may know, these cases are very expert heavy. Um, experts are able to, to look at certain maps and determine whether they, using complicated modeling software, um, where, whether they comply with neutral uh, criteria or how partisan they've been drawn. It's a similar type of technology that, that legislatures use to gerrymander. And so a lot of this will be determined, I think, um, by experts on both sides that will opine 
um, as to whether these maps um, are so extreme that they violate these constitutional provisions and, you know, because they don't comply with these, these sort of well-accepted neutral criteria. I'm looking forward to that part of the case. Um, David, anything else that you want to share with Utahans about the gerrymandering lawsuit? I just think it's a, um, it's, I, I just want to say one, uh, again, how impressed I was with the decision that Judge Gibson issued. And it's not just be, it's not just because we largely won. It, it was, um, it, it's the state court judges are underpaid and under-resourced. They have, uh, they don't have the same resources as federal judges, and they certainly don't have the same resources as, as lawyers in private practice. And for a judge to put this much time and effort and care into a, a, an opinion is unusual, um, and it just shows the diligence with which she's um, uh, with which she's approached this. And you know, it's also no matter who, which judge got this, it is this is a um, this is, takes political courage to issue a decision like this um, for uh, you know a judiciary that is in some senses checked by the legislature um, and voters. You know, for retention elections, it takes it takes courage to issue a decision that that goes against the, the will of the legislature. And I, I, I was impressed by that as well. Utahans have fought hard to have an independent redistricting process. And I think the time and attention given by the courts reflects that interest among the Utahans. So we were really happy to see it too. Thank you, David, for your time today and for all of your excellent work on this case, along with the plaintiff's entire legal team. We're very grateful. And thank you for tuning in. We'll continue to update you on Utah's anti-gerrymandering efforts and keep you informed on democracy efforts in Utah. I'm Katie Wright, your host and executive director of Better Boundaries. We hope you'll tune in and follow our podcast for updates on Utah's gerrymandering case.